Good morning. If you uh, have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis 41. Genesis chapter 41. And I know Mitch already offered, but if you don't happen to have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, uh, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Genesis chapter 41. We're going to cover a lot of verses. I'm not going to pre-read it. We'll just read it as we're walking through it. So would you join me? And let's go to the Lord. Lord, what a privilege. What an absolute uh, privilege it is to come together, Lord, to sing these songs. People have prepared for the music and leading us in that. We're in a warm building. Coffee's perkin. We have the Word of God in our language, on our lap. The Spirit of God indwelling us. An eternity promised by the sealing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And a God who is at work in every single circumstance for His good pleasure and the joy and ultimate good for His people. What a privilege that, Father, you didn't have to do that. You don't owe any of that to us. You never have. You never will. But by grace, God, you have showered us with kindness, with mercy, with love. And I thank you for that beautiful image Mitch put in front of us today of a father picking up his child. And I pray, Father, that we would return uh, our, our, our looking back to you with full adoration, praise, and glory. For you are absolutely worthy of all worship. Nobody else gets to claim that, Father. I pray for your blessing on our study now, Lord, that the body would be encouraged and refreshed, and if it is your desire, convicted. And that, Father God, the Spirit of God with the Word of God and the people of God would profoundly have an impact today. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love cliches. Um, usually because, you know, a cliche is either said a lot because it's truthful or it's said a lot because it was said a lot. And it just gets said over and over and over again. You say, oh, it's just a cliche. Well, quite often you find out, oh, it's just a cliche because it's the truth. That's real. That, that really is the truth. The one that's on my mind this morning is this, and this will be the centerpiece of the message. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. You notice I'm not titling any of the messages in the series to Joseph except for part. Um, But that would be the title of this one today, Timing is Everything. But let me just say, that would be the title of the entire storyline of Joseph, is Timing is Everything. We see this in everyday life. So yesterday, Amber and I and the kids are on our way to Chehalis, Washington for a wedding. We're going uh, down 26, doing exactly the speed limit perfectly. And as we're going down... 
<clears throat> there's this little car that comes, and how this car misses a large silver minivan, I have no idea, but in his blind spot, we were, apparently, and he cuts right there, and I almost got a new paint job on that front fender yesterday. My foot came off the gas, onto the brake, they went over, went right through, um, my mother-in-law lost three years of her life because she was sitting right here. <clears throat> but it's okay because she did what every mom does. That's what my mom did when I learned how to drive. <clears throat> and I thought, you know what? The, the amount of precision in that moment of all that took place for us to not get hit, not roll, not crash, not fill in the blank. Timing is everything. A car crash. Timing is everything. You happen to pull, you know, we ask the question, you put a pie in the oven, is it done? Well, it needs a few more minutes. It needs a few more seconds. You can either burn it or it can be gross. Uh, well, burnt would be gross too, but you, there's this sweet spot you're looking for, right? Timing is everything. Here's another antidote for you. And <clears throat> I don't know why this sticks in my brain, but it's just there. I was probably seven years old. My brother and I, my older brother and I are riding our bikes, and my brother is standing over his bike, and my plan was to ride past and hit his handlebar, so the wheel turns, bike goes over, he falls, and I laugh. That's all I had planned. Now, <clears throat> this is an incriminating story, okay, but I'm saved by grace, so follow along. So... I'm going, I'm pedaling, 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 because my speed is going to make the impact all the more fun for me. And so I'm going, and he just happens to bend to grab something, and I smack that, and his temple just gets walloped by the, his handlebars. I cannot share the rest of the story in this building this morning. <laughs> Timing. Everything. Timing is Everything. Look at the first verse of 41. And it's interesting how the ESV words this. After two whole years, there's emphasis there. Two whole, it could have just said two years and it would have communicated the same truth, right? But there's emphasis. Two whole years. After two long years, after two more years of Joseph being in prison. Now, remember, he's in a, what's the right word? He's in an elevated state here in the sense that he is looking over the other prisoners. But consistently, Joseph makes reference to this place as the pit. I don't know about you. I would not want to live anywhere or spend two years in a pit or the pit. But nonetheless, it begins with two whole years longer. And he'd already spent a number of, or at least a large amount of time in that prison with these two. As you recall, he gave the interpretation to the chief cupbearer, to the chief baker, and one went really well, the other one not so much. And as Pharaoh took the life of the of the baker, he did not take the life, but actually restored the cupbearer. And remember Joseph says, remember me. Recall me. Bring me up because of what's happened here. With, with a desire in Joseph to say, 
Get me out of this place. I'm not here. Remember, he doesn't just say, get me out of this place. It's tough. He says, get me out of this place. It's unjust. I shouldn't be here. This is, this is not where I'm supposed to be. So remember me if you would. And the cupbearer, okay, yeah, you bet. Not two whole years. Nothing. And you can look at that in two ways. Way one, man, that stinks. Way two, Joseph, timing's everything. You're not ready. You're not ready. So look at 41. And here's what kicks off the exaltation of this man. Point one is Pharaoh's troubling dreams. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows. Or, Or let me back up a little bit. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. What did this guy eat that night? And Pharaoh awoke, verse 5, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second dream. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. You can put a parenthesis in there with a red pen. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So two dreams, one after the other. Uh, Some folks, I think, may disagree on here as far as the amount of time between the two dreams. As I read it, it appears to me that this is a a dream, goes back to sleep, another dream the same night. If you disagree, let Mitch know. But nonetheless, two dreams with basically the exact same thing that happens with different characters in the dreams. The first one, seven plump luscious, beautiful, wonderful cows, and seven nasty, ugly cows. In that dream, the ugly, nasty cows swallow up the, uh, swallow up the good cows. Next dream, seven ears of grain, and it's beautiful. This is, this is what a farmer's dream, what he finds in this first set. Next one, horrible, nasty, looks like a weed. And the weeds take on and take in the beautiful grain. He wakes up, and there's potential for him to go, man, that was a strange dream. Two of them, that was weird. What are we doing today? But that's not what the text says. The text says that there was a trouble in his spirit because of what happened. Now remember, big, it was big business at this time, dream interpretation in Egypt. And so having magicians, having dream interpreters, having wise men come and interpret your dream was very much a a practice of the day in this culture. 
And Pharaoh, I would imagine, was particularly nervous here because it happened twice. Not only that, but seven, 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 seven. He's seeing this repetition in these dreams, which is causing him some angst. What is being said in these dreams? So he does what, I'm sure this is not the first time he's done this, but by habit, all right, bring in the magicians, bring in these men, these wise men who will come in and tell me my dream. Now, guys, here's the thing. This would be the perfect time for these folks to shine. Hey, did you guys hear the king had two dreams? Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, he actually asked us to come and interpret. All of us, we're all going. It's a big conference. Dream interpretation and conference this year. It's going to be great. Let's go. You think it would be a time for them to shine if they are truly have that, that gifting and if they have that capability? And they all show up, and the scripture just, the, the moment, but recorded in scripture, just levels all of them. Nobody could help. Now, I don't know how many there were, if this was a, a, you know, a group of 20 people that showed up, a group of 10 people that showed up, a group of 50 people that showed up. When it says all the wise people, it lends itself to the idea that this is a fairly large group, most likely, that all come and stand around him. They go, okay, sir, tell us your dream. Well, it's kind of strange, but okay. So I'm standing there by the Nile, and there's, there's seven cows. These are good-looking cows, and, and then there's seven nasty cows. The seven nasty cows ate the seven cows. And they're going, hmm, hmm. Okay, what else was the other dream? The other dream was I got seven years of grain, and, and they were really good, beautiful seven years of grain, and then seven nasty blighted and um, destroyed by the east wind. They look like weeds. And they took in those good ears. And they all go, hmm, okay, okay. Let me think about this. Okay, all right, so what's the interpretation? I have no idea. (laughs) Sorry, king, can't help you. Nothing. It does not help when somebody comes with, the. hopefully, you're hoping, an answer, and they say, I'm sorry, I do not know what is going on. It's always an interesting thing, isn't it, when you stand there in front of a doctor I've been there with people when this has happened. You say, so doc, here's my symptoms. Da, 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 da. What do, what's going on? Um, <laughs> I don't know. And so here's Pharaoh, if you will, saying, gentlemen, what's the diagnosis of this dream I've just had? Because it is really troubling my spirit. No idea. Now the stage is perfectly set. So let's look at Joseph, finally remembered. So we saw Pharaoh's troubling dreams, and now Joseph finally remembered. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, better never than late, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, Potiphar, We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and as you recall, king, the baker was hanged out and eaten by birds. doesn't say that, but that's what we were told. The jogging of the memory. Okay, now here's the question. Two years? 
And, and there's differing answers, you guys, about this, or I should say differing potential answers here. You could say, perhaps a cupbearer is just, you know, not that bright. You know, whatever. He holds a cup, he brings it to him, he drinks it, and then he gets paid. Really? That's your job. All right. So here's the chief cupbearer. So either A, bad memory, or B, there's some kind of odd political aspect here where he's saying, I can't tell them a Hebrew slave was telling us the interpretation of our dream. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. So was he embarrassed or ashamed of the interpretation or the fact that he got it from this Hebrew slave? Or was it purely that he just forgot in all of his joy that he was restored? I don't know the answer to the question. I see either one could, could certainly be there. I just find it interesting that in the midst of what took place in that cell, this guy heard a dream interpretation that perfectly, absolutely matched up with reality, and then he was restored with full joy, saw his other chief slaughtered, and then for the rest of two years, he has no recollection of the fact that that Hebrew slave told him exactly what would happen. So my thought is this has more to do with, I don't want to bring up this kid. But here we are. And here's the, the, the crux of the issue is the Pharaoh is troubled. Nobody could interpret for him. He is struggling. He's irritated. And all these people look like they are just a complete lie of, of a sham. And here's the chief cupbearer, and it comes to his mind, Joseph. Now, you can look at that and say, man, what a beautiful coincidence, or you can think along the lines of what your Bible teaches, that the sovereign of the universe has a plan, a purpose, and a goal for Joseph, for Pharaoh, for the cupbearer, which is where I put my money on all day long. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. Now, look between verses 13 and 14. Do you see that white space in your Bible? What's interesting to me here is this speaks, it speaks to a few different things. A, it speaks to the panic in, the, in Pharaoh at this time. B, it speaks to his trust in the cupbearer. Because how odd to say all the magicians and all of the wise men who we have built up in this complex of Egypt are a complete letdown I know, I've got a Hebrew slave in jail. <laughs> Get him in here. Well, there's a few things going on there that are going to have to be at, at, at play here, and I think it has to do with the panic of the Pharaoh. It has to do with his trust in the cupbearer, and when he tells him, this is what happened, he doesn't second-guess the cupbearer in any way. Now, remember, you really want to trust your cupbearer. Remember his job, right? I want to make sure that wine is not is not poison, I'll test it, and then I'll hand it to you. That's a very trusted individual in the life of that king. So when he says this happened, boom, he believes him that happened. And so the immediacy in the text is fascinating to me, that Pharaoh doesn't second guess, there's no questioning, send for him now. Go to the jail, the pit, get this young Hebrew slave, bring him to me, and let's see if he really can do what you tell me he can do. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Now, there are some aspects here that need to be done before he's going to go stand in front of the high and mighty. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. 
I'm just curious if they explained anything to the young guy. If they went in and said, hey, Pharaoh's just had two dreams. We need your help. Why don't you come on out here? Or if it was, Joseph, now. And he comes forward, and they take him, change his clothes, shave him, most likely bathe him, prepare him. You're going to go stand before the king. I kind of doubt that they gave some big lengthy explanation to him. They don't owe that to him. You're a slave. You do what we tell you to do. So get ready now and let's go. And so it causes me to think, so what went through the mind of this guy? Uh, the, the most, one of the most fascinating pieces of Joseph is this is a man who is so consistently obedient to the Lord, to the rulers in his life, I realize he doesn't have a choice here. I get that. But there's no fuss. There's no argument. It just says he sent for him, they cleaned him up, and he went to stand before Pharaoh. I highly doubt, I highly doubt that Joseph's first thought was, the cupbearer remembered. Why? Two years, day in, day out, day in, day out, nothing. So now Pharaoh is brought, or Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. Now, you guys, here's what's so fascinating about what's taking place in this text is so much, and these are some of my favorite little pieces of the Old Testament Scripture, I mean of all Scripture, but particularly the Old Testament narrative, is the tiniest detail upon which the whole storyline turns. So the jogging of a memory of one single cupbearer, and you look at how that tiny little piece will play a role in the entire life of Joseph, entire life of his father, entire life of his brothers, entire life of the nation of Israel, entire life of Egypt, entire life of Pharaoh, entire life of the cupbearer, all that's going to be turning around based on one guy going, I remember this one kid. Now there's passages like that, just your Bible's chock full of it, where you look at little details and you say, oh, I'm glad that coincidence happened, or oh, I'm glad that 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 happened by chance. No, brothers and sisters, our gods have got a detail, our gods have got a precision. He's on point. He's not biting his nails in heaven saying, I hope they do what I want them to do. That's not, that's not the God of the word. And you can track it, you guys. My goodness, look at the messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ and the tiniest details that the scriptural writers point to, saying this right here has always been pointing to the Son. And so in this moment, this small little thing that took place where this cupbearer remembers, the entire thing has turned on its end. I was reading this week, um, trying to find an illustration to go along with that thought. And I looked up in British Columbia, I think it was 2015, there was a boat crash. And it was like a ferry or something along those lines. And what happened was they steered it and dealt with it correctly so that what it did was hit a bunch of boats nobody was in. But like 22 boats got smashed by this one boat. After they did all the hard work of trying to figure out What caused all this? You know what it came down to? A faulty cotter pin in that boat. 
22 boats. Hey, how'd your boat get smashed? Oh, this big boat hit it. Well, who hit that big boat? Another big boat. And ultimately, this other very, very large boat hit those boats. Wow, why'd that large boat hit your boat? Because they were steering here to save us, really. And you just keep chipping away and chipping away and chipping away until you go, yeah, there's this cotter pin that gave way. Nanoseconds yesterday in reference to not hitting that car. Yes, I mean, just... Amazing to me what the Lord is about and what he is doing. I think I shared this story with you before, but last year, Amber and I and the kiddos were, I think it was last year, maybe it was this year. I don't know. It all runs together. We were coming back home from Spokane, and I was listening to this podcast that really I got engrossed in while I was driving, so I was paying careful attention to everything. And as we, as we were driving, I missed the turn. I missed the turn. And uh, went down the wrong highway for one hour. It was a really good podcast, though. So, <clears throat> and my my precious helpmeet woke up and said, "Where are you?" <clears throat> and we got got on the right track, and then headed back, double back, and whatever. She found a great crossroad and saved us. Not crossroads. She found a great road that took us over, and and we saved a bunch of time. We were okay. But then we came out of Tri-Cities, and we're driving through Tri-Cities, and as we're driving through there, it was an insane hailstorm that just freakishly showed up. And I am not joking. You can ask Amber. She's, she's honest. I mean, we both are, but she's really honest. And as we were going down the road, I think there was, what, four or five cars? Seven cars. See? <laughs> I try to be, yeah, okay. <clears throat> There's seven cars. Two or three on their tops. All these cops pass us, heading that direction. And Amber and I were like, this was almost, on, almost to the minute of the amount of time that I wasted going the other direction. Now, if you're a fair biblicist, you'd ask this question. Okay, Dan, but what about the cars that crashed? I think the Lord is at work in it all, accomplishing his good purpose. But in that day, my mistake was because there was a gracious God, I believe, with all my heart. I live like that, by the way. I look for his hand. Sometimes I'm frustrated and irritated by circumstances, but after time passes, I look behind me and I go, man, you know what? My goodness. What an idiot to not think that God's hand would be in the middle of that, too. So here's the cupbearer, and he goes, hey, I just remembered. Let me tell you what happened. All right, prepare the kid, bring him in, and I want him to tell me the interpretation. So Pharaoh unloads the interpretation. Now, down at your Bible. Uh, Let's see here. I'm going to read 15 again. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, you bet I can. (laughs) It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Beloved, if there was ever a banner to hang over you all day long for the rest of your life, it is not in me. It's him. It's in the Lord. It's not in Dan. You go, oh, Dan, that was great what you did. It's not in me. 
And yet, is it not the practice of this world to always look to this world for the help, for the answer? We fall prey to this too. The dumbest statement that comes out of my mouth at times is, all we can do now is... Yeah, all we can do. You see how ridiculous that is? As if it's the the ditch effort? Let me take care of this one, Lord. I got this one. Oh, I guess I don't. All I can do now is pray. What a mockery. Joseph immediately, his quick response, and this is what's so cool, it's so reflexive, right? He doesn't say, oh yeah, I can, uh, as long as you get me out of the pit. He doesn't talk like that. His first response is, only God does that. The Lord's the one that does that. And he's not trying to be a pain. He's not, I don't think he's being disrespectful to Pharaoh. I don't see any of that in his character or in the text or in the response from Pharaoh. But it's reflexive. The theology of this young man is maturing. It's producing. He's changing. So his natural reaction is, that's God. That's not Joseph. That's God. So isn't this interesting? You have the world saying, I need help, and I heard you can help me. I can't help you. What do you mean you can't help me? Then who can help me? My God can help you. Beloved, what what an application that jumps off the page of your Bible. That when this world, at times, may look to you and I to be the answer, we are an arrow pointing to the answer. We are not the answer. Joseph is not the answer. Joseph points to his God. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Joseph now is sought after, and Joseph is going to give an interpretation. Verse uh, 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, and I'm going to buzz through this a little quicker, guys, just because it's a reiteration of what we've already heard. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full full and good, seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, what I like, again, and I just, you have to catch this, okay, There's no arrogance. There's no pompous response. Joseph doesn't say, oh, they didn't? Well, you've got the right man on your side now. There's there's a a true, genuine, God-given humility about this man. Because what does he do? He immediately goes right to the interpretation. 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. I know you told me there's two, but really, they're saying the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Not he, Pharaoh, he, God. The seven good cows are seven years. 
Remember, that's seven, that complete number. And the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So there's the interpretation. Again, I made this point last week. I just want to reiterate this again. What is so intensely fascinating to me, is there is absolutely no second-guessing of Joseph regarding to his interpretation. Nowhere in the dream does Joseph say, or in the interpretation does Joseph say, I think, or maybe, or this is plausible. But with intensity, with clarity, unflinching, he says, this is what's going to happen. Number one, God did this. Number two, here's what's going to happen. Seven years, you're going to have seven years of of beautiful, bountiful, plenty. It's going to be great. And then after that, seven years of famine and horror. So to the point, you won't even remember what happened in the first seven years. It is going to be so severe and so harsh on you and on your people. God has revealed this to you. Now, I find it fascinating, and you guys can wrestle with this and untangle it all you want. I find it fascinating, God speaking to Pharaoh through a dream, but without an interpretation. That's an interesting aspect of your Old Testament scripture because often we see the Lord communicating through many and various ways to his people, but specifically here to this pagan king. And then having a man after his own heart, I know that's in reference to David, but I would say the same here for Joseph. He brings Joseph in and Joseph gives the interpretation with utter clarity for Pharaoh. Now, Joseph is not only an interpreter of dreams by God's grace, but he's also very wise. Look down at your Bible. Uh, Let's see here. 34, or 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, a very, very simple answer or or, um, strategy if you know what's coming. If you don't, you just go along and it's fine and eventually you can't find toilet paper at Walmart. But here you see Joseph's wisdom, not only the interpretation, but I also am saying, here's the strategy. This is what you should do. Take one-fifth, 
and I want you to start holding that. Now, don't let anybody else hold that. Your authority, Pharaoh, should be over that reserve. Hold that reserve. We go through the bountiful years. We can thank God for that and enjoy that, and we're also now prepared for those seven very, very difficult famine years. This is the plan. And by the way, you should get a very wise individual to lead and appoint overseers to accompany him to accomplish this task. Now, I realize, you guys, that we're cynical enough we could read that and go, oh, I see what you're doing, Joseph. But I don't see that in the text. I don't think for any reason for us to say, oh, so Joseph's name dropping or position dropping with the intent of, by the way, that's me. I don't see that. I don't think that he's, he's um, distrusting the Lord to that extent. But Pharaoh's no dummy. And he was just given an interpretation, not only interpretation, he was given sound wisdom of strategy, and it all came from this young 30-year-old Hebrew slave. So listen to what he does. 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh, well, yeah, and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, okay, so now here's Joseph, he's standing there, he's explained, he's told him what to do, so on and so forth. I would imagine a very humble service way. Listen to what he says. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Please notice, not plural gods, which I find interesting uh, because of this pagan culture that he's in. What did, what did Pharaoh mean in reference to the Spirit of God? I don't know. I wasn't in the guy's brain. I'm not sure what all is meant and what he understands of what he's even saying, but at the very least, we could say somebody with great sound wisdom. All right, 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now listen to this. This is just his brothers would gasp. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. You guys, you, you understand how insane this is for the king of Egypt to say to this 30-year-old Hebrew slave, you will be my man. You are, yeah, oh yeah, we're taking you from the pit, all right. We're going to put you second in command over everything. Where'd I leave off? <clears throat> Where'd I be without you? You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. That is a breathtaking statement. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Now, I'm going to chase after this next week, so I'm going to stop there. But I want you just to notice, this is perfect timing. Joseph, you're ready. This is not by mistake. This is not by happenstance. God in his grace. Remember, what do we read right off the bat in this chapter? Two whole years. Well, yeah, the Lord's not done with him yet. The Lord has preparations. Remember, he's using that sandpaper. He's getting this instrument in a perfect place where the Lord wants him to be. And you say, but Dan, what did he do in those two years? I don't know. That's in the counsel of God. 
You could ask some of you who are suffering right now with aches and pains and family troubles and financial troubles and all the different things that Mitch was talking about earlier. And you can ask the question, God, what are you doing right now? And at times he'll show you, but most often it's afterwards he shows you. But that's not the point. The point is, are you trusting him that he is actually accomplishing a task in the midst of it? One place that I despise being in all the world is a waiting room. It doesn't matter what waiting room. Even the title is terrible. Waiting, that just means you go in a room and wait. That's all you do there. I do not like waiting. But God in his grace says, Dan, wait. What can I do while I wait? You can pray. You can trust me. You can grow in grace. I know, but I want to be moving and doing. I know you do, but wait. Joseph, you stay in the pit two more years. You look over people. You answer to people. You consistently move forward, and I'll be chipping away, producing a perfect man to be in second command under Pharaoh. You imagine if you go to Joseph during the first year of those two and you go, hey, listen, I, I, know that it's, I know it's tough. I know you're struggling. I get that. I get that. But in a year, you will be second to the king. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. You'll be second to the king. Nothing will be withheld from you except for he will always be first but you'll be beside him in everything, and everything done in this place will be done according to your word and your command. He would have been just, is too good to believe. There, there's no way that that could ever happen, and yet here it is perfectly unfolding. Joseph, you have gone from utter humiliation of being chained and hauled off from your kin to second in command in Egypt. Let me read this. I thought this was very helpful from Griffith Thomas, a commentator I've been reading. It says, This in substance was the interpretation and the advice based upon it. Not a word was uttered about himself, in reference to Joseph, nor does there seem any hint that he considers himself to be the man whom Pharaoh should appoint. Joseph does not seem to have cared about himself at all. The frankness with which he told the king the dream, the quiet dignity with which he gave his counsel, the perfect balance with which he stood before Pharaoh and his court are striking features of this splendid character. Six traits stand out which constitute him one of the models for all time. Integrity, conscientiousness, diligence, nobility, courage, humility. He is one of the all-around symmetrical characters of the Bible. And that's true, but we do a massive blunder if we give credit and glory to Joseph. Because do you notice who never does that? Joseph, it's not in me, it's in my God. You want a theme to trace throughout your whole Bible? Track the theme of men who the world seeks to worship who direct that to the Lord. You will see that in many of the great, great men throughout, your, throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church, 
And I would say some of the greatest believers I've ever come in contact with are those who never tell you about themselves, but always tell you about their God. So I end with this. Those years of the brother's sale of their brother up to this moment of the king saying, boom, you will be my second in command. God was preparing Joseph for this time. And here's some characteristics. Self-forgetfulness, God's glory as the greatest desire, and the service of others naturally. I might say supernaturally, but by nature he just does this now. Self-forgetfulness, God's glory as the greatest desire, and a service for other people naturally. These are the characteristics of a person who has truly seen God rightly, and now Joseph is ready. Not because of Joseph, but because of God's fine-tuning. Now, here's what I want you to chew on with me for just a second. If you went to Joseph at 17, Dad just gave him the coat, everything's going great, and you said, Joseph, God has this incredible plan for you. But I want to show you, I wrote it all down, I want you to read what you're going to endure until you're 30. And you tell me, Joseph, if it's worth it. We'd like to think, of course he'd say yes, right? God doesn't do that. Rather, what he says is, you don't know what's around the next corner. Joseph, you don't have a clue that you're going to be second in command. And in your suffering, you can either trust me that I know what I'm doing and I am perfectly at work in the midst of your situation, or you can walk in doubt. You can deny me and say, man, God doesn't know what he's doing. So, beloved, here's the interesting thing is this God has not changed in the least. He is your God. He hasn't lost the reins. And what you're going through, what you may potentially be going through, there is a loving, gracious God at work. So, once again, Mitch, that call to worship and the message dovetail the way God wanted them to. I don't know what exactly the Lord's preparing all of you for. Maybe it's for something that's going to happen next week. Maybe it's something that's going to happen in 10 years, 5 years. Who knows? But that's not the point. And that's, the, that's the point that I want to make is that that's not the point. The point is, do you trust him with what's going on? And do you recognize that your Father loves you and is accomplishing a magnificent task in you and through you simultaneously. My hope and prayer, beloved, is that the more you see the character of God, the more you have ample reason to trust Him. One foot in front of the other in faith. My God's got this, regardless of how the circumstances appear to me. Let's pray.